Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Julian Barber will join us to discuss the Janus Point. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, time. It's one of those things that we think we know about, but what exactly is it, and is our theory of time? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Julian Barber. Dr. Barber is the author of the highly regarded Discovery of Dynamics and the bestseller, The End of Time. He received his PhD in physics from the University of Cologne in 1968 and is past visiting professor of physics at the University of Oxford and lives on the edge of the scenic Cotswolds in the UK. His new book, The Janus Point, A New Theory of Time, explores this issue for a general audience. And Dr. Barber, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, that's a great pleasure, and I'm honored that you invite me to join you. Well, this is certainly a fascinating topic, a new theory of time. I came about the theory and decided to put the book together. So I've been studying time for close on 60 years. It was by chance I read about an article by the great British physicist Paul Dirac. He was one of the great discoverers of quantum mechanics. And he questioned the notion of space-time that Einstein had developed. He said he was inclined to doubt whether there was this four-dimensional symmetry, which is the key thing in that. That made me think for the first time, I mean, I'd wanted to become an astrophysicist since I was 10, I'd been fascinated by the, the astronomy and the universe. But it made me start thinking, what is time? And Very soon I came to the conclusion that we would have no notion of time if things didn't change, that really time has to be deduced from change. That idea has just been with me all along. It's just gone on developing. I've had some very good collaborators over the years. I went independent. When I'd got my PhD, I decided to be independent because trying to study such basic questions at a university, I think people would look a bit askance at that. (laughs) And already then there was this this saying, publish or perish. And and I thought I'm not going to be publishing two or three articles, profound articles (laughs) every year. So I, I I earned my living for 28 years translating scientific Russian journals. I'd learned Russian as a hobby. So that's how it came to get going. I think this notion of time relying on change, it also is founded in thermodynamics, change being linked to disorder. But you posit that that kind of change is not necessarily the change that time has to be bound to. Yes. The idea that the direction of time is determined by the increase of entropy which people say is an increase of disorder. We may talk about that a bit later because I'm not sure that that's such a good idea. But anyway, this idea was put forward by Boltzmann basically in in 1896. And I think he was absolutely right. He said the direction of time is determined by how things are changing in the world around you. 
And that was, I think, the first person who'd really clearly said that. And that's a lasting achievement of Boltzmann. But whether that was the best way to think about the universe is another matter. There's no question that you and I are going to get older. We're never going to get younger. <laughs> and all the stars in the universe, the great wide universe, they're all getting older in the same direction as we are. And you could say that is a fact of thermodynamics, but whether the universe as a whole is getting more disordered, I think that's quite a different matter. I certainly, as regards my own, what's inside my brain, I certainly do feel that it is getting more disordered because I have difficulty remembering names of people. Everybody complains of that, but I also have difficulty remembering the names of things sometimes. And I certainly didn't have that five years ago. So to that extent, my brain is getting disordered. But I'm not sure that that's the right way to think about the universe. Can there be pockets of local order, but in the aggregate disorder? Well, that is the standard view. They say that entropy can certainly decrease if it is increasing somewhere by more. And the classic example of that is my refrigerator, which is just next to me. That is being cooled down, but the kitchen in which it is is an enclosed space and it puts a bit of heat into the kitchen. So that is entropy increase. So, so that's, I'm not challenging that. That's absolutely standard. But I would say, if you look at the entire universe, that's just not the right way to think about it. I think people were sent in the wrong direction. There was a very famous paper that was published in 1852 by William Thompson, who later became Lord Kelvin because of all his many contributions to science. And the title of his paper was On a Universal Tendency in Nature to the Dissipation of Mechanical Energy. And that made a huge impression, and it seemed to be the right way to think about it. He had been stimulated to make that statement because of the great Frenchman Sadi Carnot, who'd worked out how a steam engine could be made to work most efficiently. And Carnot pointed out that if ever the heat you have available in the furnace is just allowed to spread out without doing some work, because hot air will expand, you must make sure that you get the maximum use out of any heat that you've got. And Kelvin says that Carnot pointed out that there's an absolute waste of energy if you don't do that. And then he gave as a, an example, which is always repeated of how mechanical energy can be dissipated is friction. If you, if you rub your finger on, on the table, both your finger and the table will get a bit warmer. And so the whole idea of entropy being a measure of disorder, I think sort of was strongly influenced by that paper of Kelvin, but I'm not sure that it's the right way. As I say, Kelvin gave the example of, of friction, but there's a very beautiful effect that I saw a few weeks ago when I walked down to the brook. I live in the country, as you said, near the Cotswolds, and there's a brook where the stream the water flows over a ford and it's generally quite smooth. And I walked down there one afternoon, soon after it had rained, and there's a tree that hangs over that ford and water drops were falling from the tree into the water. And that 
was very interesting because as the water drop was falling, all of the energy was in that water drop. When it hit the water, it didn't so much dissipate as get spread out because you get this beautiful effect of concentric circles spreading out from the impact. So I think that what Kelvin should have said was spreading of mechanical energy, not dissipation, because dissipation is such a negative word, whereas spreading in some cases can be very beautiful. Now, I just noticed that, I think I've got the text here. So very soon after that, I was listening to a radio program about the Beethoven symphonies by the famous conductor, Sir John Elliot Gardner. And he was talking about the start of the second movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. And he said of it, of the opening, it is something quite out of the extraordinary. He starts off with this octave in the winds, just a held octave. And then it's almost as if he is throwing a stone, a pebble into a beautifully calm pond or lake and you can see the concentric circles rippling outwards as the stone falls into the water. Now, is that depressing? <laughs> is that something to be gloomy about? Now, Paul Davis, who's a very fine scientist and has written a lot of very good popular science books, says that that paper of Kelvin on the dissipation of mechanical energy is one of the gloomiest scientific predictions of all time. But if it can give inspiration, that very effect of spreading, if it can give inspiration to a great conductor like John Elliott Gardner conducting Beethoven's symphony, I think we've got quite the wrong way of thinking about the universe. And Paul Davis goes on to say, you only have to look at the sun to see it burning its nuclear fuel and sending energy out all into space to see confirmation of that terribly gloomy prediction of Kelvin. But let's actually think about what really is happening, what the sun is doing. The sun is actually creating more structured, more interestingly formed nuclei. It's converting hydrogen into helium and if it was a bigger star, it would go on converting it into the higher elements. If it's a really big star, it will go off in a supernova explosion. And that will create the heavier elements, the noble elements, silver, gold, platinum. Now, we all know that we're made of stardust because those are the, all the elements that the stars sent out. And not only are we made of these things, but also we decorate ourselves with gold and silver. <laughs> Look, I don't wear earrings and I don't see you with them, but plenty of other people do. So, I mean, we wouldn't be here at all if the stars weren't doing that. The earth would not be getting the rays from the sun. And in fact, as you and I are talking, all of this information that's being exchanged between us, we're nodding to each other on Zoom, that's actually being transmitted out into the whole universe. I call that spangling in my book. People out there with sufficiently uh, sensitive radio telescopes, they can pick up incredibly low energies and they could see all this. And all of that is being spread out over the whole universe. I just think that one word of Kelvin may have made scientists think about the universe in completely the wrong way.
what then would you think is the right way to think about it? How should we conceptualize the universe, energy that flows with it, and ultimately time? The idea that I put forward in my book, and I that book took me over four years to write, and it was a bit of a voyage of discovery. But just look at the universe from the Big Bang up to the present time, the present epoch. There's no question certainly within a split second after the Big Bang, the universe was very uniform. It wasn't exactly uniform, but it was very uniform and it was more or less in thermal equilibrium. It had pretty well the same temperature everywhere. There's, the furthest back we can see the temperature is uniform to one part in 100,000. That's very uniform. But ever since then, it's been getting more structured. There weren't any people like you and me talking to each other on Zoom near the Big Bang. <laughs> so the universe started off very uniform, very little variety. But since then, it's been getting ever more varied. And I think that one should not think of laws of nature that hold in each little bit of space and time, but one should think of the law of the universe. And my candidate law of the universe, my proposal for the law of the universe, is that it begins with the most uniform shape that it can possibly have. And I have a precise prescription for what that shape is. And that ever since then, it's been getting more varied. And I don't see any reason why it shouldn't go on doing that forever. Now, one thing that people will say, yes, but the energy is getting lower and lower because the universe has expanded. But the only real things in science are ratios. Think of Gulliver's Travels and Alice in Wonderland. It's difference of size that counts. So if there are regions where low levels of energy are encountering higher levels of energy, it's just like Gulliver being either a dwarf or a giant on his journeys. And the, the same with Alice in Wonderland. So as long as there are differences expressed through ratios, if variety is defined in terms of ratios, they can go on getting more and more varied, more and more interesting, literally forever. So in this case, then now time is given a direction by increasing structure. Then. Yes, I would start off, and this is an idea I've had and I already expressed in my book, The End of Time, over 20 years ago, that an instant of time is a shape of the universe. So there can't be any rulers or clocks outside the universe to measure its size or how fast it's running. But think of a triangle. Normally, you think that a triangle has a shape and a size. But if there's no ruler to measure the size, it's only got a shape. And that's defined by ratio. So the, the shape of a triangle is defined by two internal angles. And you get them, they are de determined by the ratios of the side length. So there are three side lengths. Those are not ratios, but then you can form ratios, two independent ratios from them. And that gives you the shape. And I would say that the simplest model, the minimal model that I do a lot of in my book, The Janus Point, is just, I say that the history of the universe is just a succession of shapes, of, of triangles, if it's the simplest model you can possibly have. 
And in fact, the at the Big Bang, the Big Bang in the in the problem with three particles, the, the famous three-body problem that gave Newton headaches when he was trying to understand the motion of the sun, the earth, and the moon in their mutual gravitational fields. The Big Bang for that system is when they're at the equilateral triangle. And then they evolve into shapes that are not equilateral, they're scalene, all the three, in general, all the three internal angles will be different. And as the evolution goes on, two particles get ever closer to each other than to the third. So if you divide the ratio of the separation between the pair of particles to the further one, the one that's further away, that gets ever smaller. So the shape of the system looks like a shard. That you could say is the complete history of the universe from the Big Bang. But it's actually even more remarkable because if the energy and the angular momentum are zero, and that's what you would expect if this is a model of the universe because motion is relative and, and, and you shouldn't be able to talk about rotation of the universe or how fast it's going. When those two particles get together, they form what my collaborators and I call a Kepler pair. They're going round each other around their common center of mass in elliptical orbits, just like Kepler showed that the planets go around the sun in ellipses. And as they're doing that, miraculously, just that one Kepler pair is becoming a ever better ruler, compass, and clock all in one. Because every time it goes around its orbit, that's a tick of the clock. The semi-main direction relative to the one particle that's escaping, going off in the other direction. And that shows that third particle is obeying Newton's first law of motion. It's going in a straight line. So all of that just comes out of that equilateral triangle. It's, it's fantastic. Now, is that disorder increasing? Tell it to the Marines. <laughs> I'm getting more and more confident saying that. People have just not. And by the way, that behavior of the three-body problem that all solutions with vanishing angular momentum behave like that, that's been known for 120 years. And people still haven't picked that up. Not the people interested in the arrow of time and the growth of entropy. The people who work on the n-body problem, how Newton's law of gravity works, they know these results perfectly well. And I learned it from them because I've been very lucky to talk to two great specialists on that part of science, the, the n-body problem, as it's called, that's n particles, a finite number of particles, in Paris, to two people there at the observatory in Paris. But people like that, I don't think we're interested in, in the growth of entropy in the arrow of time. <laughs> and the people who were interested in that didn't know about these things in, 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 in Newton's theory of gravity. I'm now working on an idea, and I've just, it came to me right at the end of writing the book, near the end of the book, at the end of chapter 18, in a page and a half, I put in a very radical idea, but I'm getting more confident that it might be right. And if it is, then there's a huge amount of work to be done by theoreticians. So there is a unique way to characterize the degree of complexity or variety of a shape. It, it's the people who work on the n-body problem call it the shape potential or the normalized Newton potential. It's, it's a pure number. It's a ratio of two quantities, and it's a measure of how structured or how clustered a system is. 
and it, it's mathematically very distinguished. It's what's called an invariant, and mathematicians love invariants. And it's the simplest invariant you can have in Newton's theory. And wonders, there's an, there's an analogous one in Einstein's theory. It's called the Yamabe invariant, and that it exists was finally proved in 1989. And it's one of the great mathematical triumphs of the 20th century proving that this thing exists. So we're, we're in touch with, with very deep mathematics. So my suggestion is that this pure number, this complexity in, in the n-body problem, literally is time if you have a model there. And, and we're trying to develop a quantum theory based on that idea. And it does look really quite interesting. Very fascinating. Uh, maybe to close then, people are sort of interested in the ideas. Where can they go? Well, there is this online organization, Closer to Truth, who did a very nice interview. Robert Kuhn, very good interviewer. That's, I think it may be an hour long, or certainly 50 minutes. And that's on YouTube, on the Closer to Truth YouTube channel. So I would say that's the first place to go. Otherwise, there's an essay on Nautilus, the American online magazine. That's where I talk about this idea with the water drops. I mean, it was very interesting. I went down to saw those water drops falling and it was literally two or three days later that I heard uh, John Elliott Gardner talking about Beethoven's symphony. I think that'll, that'll be an introduction. That'll whet their appetite to get the book if they want to. Well, we were just talking with Dr. Julian Barber. He is the author of the new book, The Janus Point, A New Theory of Time. And Dr. Barber, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, it was a pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on rocking.